My name's Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful to be a part of a place, as Adam said, where we can honestly say everyone's welcome here because no one's perfect. And the reason we can honestly say that is because Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead to accomplish what we could not accomplish, the forgiveness of sins, so that anyone who would trust in him and follow him would have life and life everlasting. And I mean, there's, there's freedom in the house today because we are alive in Christ. Amen. Amen. And I can't wait to celebrate baptism with a few new family members, a couple new family members uh, later today. But before we get there, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 27 through 30. It's this awesome topic that I've just been itching to preach for so many weeks now on adultery uh, and lust, lustful intent. So as we prepare our hearts uh, for the word of God today, I'd love to start by reading a psalm, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. This is something that I constantly pray, and I think we should all really be constantly praying this as, as Christians we have freedom to know that we can come to God through the, by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. We can come into the most holy places and ask God to search us. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my, my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and, and reveal any grievous or wicked or idolatrous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's read that together. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As we come to a topic like adultery Jesus knew that when he was teaching this in the Sermon on the Mount, in the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount, that his audience would have heard that in a unique way. And honestly, for us today, we hear that word adultery, and, and most of us, maybe not all of us, certainly not all of us, but some of us in the room will hear that word and say, nope, I'm good, never cheated on my wife. And Jesus knew that this is, what he would be coming up against with this teaching. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus says in Matthew 27, Matthew 5, verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And just for clarity's sake, we could also read it this way. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him in his heart. So Jesus already, he just says, I know what you're thinking. And I know that you have heard this and you have taught this in a certain way. But I say to you, even if you look on another with lustful intent. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Whew. And as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and we're just getting started, by the way, but as we've seen, Jesus takes what has been taught and he takes what they've constructed as religion in order to earn righteousness, and he tears it down, and he says, no, no, you're missing it because you're taking it to the letter and you're adding to the letter, and I have come to fulfill the law, and the law is meant to show you that you in your heart, you in your heart are not able in your sin to avoid failing in relation to this law, it's, it's meant to point you to me, Jesus is saying. I want you to understand the gravity, Jesus is saying. I want you to understand the weight of your sin. It's not only that you abstain from the act of adultery, it's also that you must never look on another with lustful intent. 
The penalty, the weight is the same in the eyes of God, Jesus is saying. So when we come to John chapter 8, where the woman is caught in adultery and the, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, should we stone her as, accord, as in accordance with the law of Moses? They were actually right in saying that she should be put to death according to the law of Moses. And of course, we know in that scene in John chapter 8, some, uh, actually the early manuscripts don't have this in there, but when you, most of your Bibles will show in the beginning of John chapter 8, we see Jesus kneeling down and looking up and saying to them, whoever's without sin, you cast the first stone. Of course, no one had any stones to throw at the woman who was caught in adultery, and Jesus then stands in her place and forgives her and says, go and sin no more. He's ushering in the new covenant. He's giving us a window into the way that God loves us through him. He gives us a window there in this scene into the way that he is going to fulfill the law and give us, provide for us forgiveness in his name. But according to the law of Moses, they were absolutely right that the penalty was death for adultery. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, just quickly here. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death, both of them. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, of, of another man both of them shall die. Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. We see that the punishment, the penalty according to the law is great for adultery. The New Testament speaks strongly against adultery as well. And I don't have time to read all of these passages, but I'm going to say them in case you have time later to go through and look at these passages from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Galatians 5, verses 19 and 21 uh, through 21. Hebrews 13, 4. We will read that in a little bit, most likely, if I can get that far down all of these notes. Don't worry. Revelation 2, verse 22. Look at these New Testament verses and pieces of Scripture speaking against adultery and sexual immorality. So what is adultery? What, let's define it before we go any further. Adultery, in the broad sense is any sexual relations outside of marriage. Sexual intimacy outside of the covenant, the union that God has instituted of marriage. Now we're going to talk a lot about that and unpack it as we go. The Westminster Larger Catechism says this, about the duties required in, in the seventh commandment. What, uh, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. This is what the Westminster Catechism says. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. And the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Take a step further. We're to preserve it in ourselves and in others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Watchfulness over all of our senses because our senses are a window into our heart. Temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation. Diligent labor in all our calling, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. This, this is historically what the church has looked to to further describe what this means when we say do not commit adultery. This is strict. This is uh, all-encompassing. This is comprehensive. So when we look at this, we have to understand what it means. When Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery, I know you've heard that said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he, he equates lustful intent with adultery, knowing that the penalty of adultery is significant. 
And it may feel like a big jump from adultery to lustful intent. But we have to remember that the, the difficulty here is not in whether or not Jesus' words are true. The difficulty is in how we are to apply it. And Jesus said, but I, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But I say to you, Jesus said, that, that's emphatic. In the original language, I there is emphatic, which means he is, he is proving authority. He, he's, he's making it clear that his word is authoritative, and he's declaring that by saying, I know you've heard it said here, and I know that that is the law of God. That's not changing, but I have come to fulfill it. And he explains it further. Lustful intent. Let's talk about that for a second. This is one word in the original language that can be broken down the first part of uh, the, into, two, into two words. This one word can be broken down into two words in the original. And the first one means focused on, intently. And the second word means passionate desire. So we find in this word, in the original language, that it, it, it means to show focused passion. Building on what a person truly yearns for. That's one definition that I found. This is speaking of the depths of desire. The depths of our heart and what our heart longs for and calls us to. This word means to greatly desire to do or have something. That is off limits. <laughs> and I want to present a thought to you that's probably going to feel oversimplified to some, but I want to present it anyway, and I want to build it a little bit further. That the sin, when it comes to lustful intent, the sin is not in the seeing. The sin is in the looking. So when something beautiful and attractive or someone beautiful and attractive comes into your gaze or comes across your TV screen, the sin I'm proposing is not in the seeing of that, but it's in the looking. Looking lustfully to satisfy a desire that's inside. We see an example of this Unfortunately, in King David, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're just going to read a little bit of this story. If you have time later, I would encourage you to go and study it. And you've probably heard this story before, but David is on the rooftop. And he looks across at another rooftop and he sees a beautiful woman bathing naked on the rooftop. And look at this account in 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. I'd just like to pause there and propose just for a moment that the fact that he was on the rooftop and the fact that he looked across at another rooftop was not sinful. But it's what happened subsequently that is sinful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eli Eliam? Eliam? Don't know. Man, here we are. <clears throat> the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And then she washed herself, and then she went back. And then later she came and sent word that she was pregnant by the king, David. Pretty simple, pretty plain in the text. He sees her across the way. He thinks she's beautiful. And apparently, very quickly, he says, go get her and bring her to me. We're not gonna break down. Uh, I, I don't mean to propose that we should... Um, break down this progression of sin and, and assume that we know all that happened here and the depth of it. But at the same time, it's pretty obvious that this is sinful. He, he succumbs to his lustful desire and he goes as far as to bring her to his house 
and to be intimate with her. And then she, of course, becomes pregnant. He saw her on the roof. He kept looking at her on the roof. And then he took action. So let's go to the next chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was the prophet. The spokesperson for God in, those, in, in that day for David was coming to him. God was very displeased with what David had done. And so he sent Nathan to speak with David. And this is what the Lord gave Nathan to say. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. For those of you animal people, this is that dog at the table that doesn't eat the dog food, but eats all of the food that you are eating. I don't understand you. But my wife does. Congratulations to all of you animal people that, that uh, love animals. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. How could the rich man take the poor man's animal and prepare it for the guest? How could the rich man take what was so prized of the poor man and just take it that quickly and do with it whatever he pleased? And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Before he dies, he shall restore the lamb fourfold back to the poor man because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to him, you are the man. I got this picture of David like bubbling over with anger and, and, and knowing just what to do to justly punish the person who did such a bad thing. And, and growing in his intensity, growing and it's building and Nathan sitting back, letting him release all of this and build up to this moment to really lay down the truth of the matter, which is, David, God gave me this story to open up your eyes to the fact that you are the man. Exclamation point. This is what I think about. How did Nathan deliver that statement? You are the man. I think it was emphatic enough without him to yell it. You are the man. And here's what I want to say to us men and women today. When we come to Jesus' words, when we hear the seventh commandment, it might be easy to escape it. But when we come to Jesus' words, there's no escaping the fact that you are the man, that you are the woman, that we should be broken over the fact that we are no less likely to fall into this temptation and to act out of our lustful desires as David was. Oh, no, no, I've never cheated on my wife. Whoever looks on another with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. When you see something attractive and you resist the temptation and you turn your eyes to something else, that's one thing. There may not be sin in that. I could argue that there's seeds of sin in that. Man, by the way, they just put my clock on an hour, and I love it. I'm so excited to have an hour left with you guys. I don't know that they did that on purpose. I think it did it by itself. That must be from, no. I'm not going an hour, I promise. We got baptism to celebrate. We got burgers to eat, pizza, whatever, tacos. 
When you see something attractive and you resist the temptation and you turn elsewhere, that's one thing. But when you continue to look and then when you eventually act or even when you don't act, but you continue to look, you're proving what's on the inside. You're proving the immorality that has taken root inside of you. And we have to come to terms with this lustful intent. But, but we have to also understand this is not a temptation or this is not a test to see who can avoid temptation the best. Like I grew up thinking that the church was just a group of people that was trying to avoid all of the bad things in the world. That's not what this is. That's not what God has constructed here. That's not what it means to be free in Christ. That's not what it means to be liberated to live. That's not what it means to be not of the world, but sent into the world. We are to live freely, but but we have to understand God doesn't test us in this way. Do you remember what James said in, in, in chapter one, verse 13? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured. That's that's like a fishing term, you know? Lured. And enticed. By what? Somebody on a pole trying to reel you in? Maybe. But look where it comes from before all that. By his or her own desire. And then... Desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is what we see here in Jesus' teaching. Lustful intent. To greatly desire to do or have something that's off limits. Lustful intent equals adultery. And if, if, if your Jesus will go on in a minute, if, you're gonna, if, if your eye is going to allow you to do that and your hand's going to cause you to do that, then just take them out. Remove them. Because it's better to not have them than to burn in eternal damnation. We're going to unpack that a little further. I'm not just going to leave it with you. Because the reality is, We come to this, and I've been coming to it all week, feeling pretty condemned, feeling pretty useless. (laughs) But there is hope. There is hope. But the hope is not found in the way that the scribes and the Pharisees chose to handle the seventh commandment. I want to read this. Just as a what not to do, I want to read this account from Josephus, who is a, a, a famous historian. He, he wrote this, The Antiquities of the Jews. And for those of you who are excited to read this uh, thrilling work, it, it, you, this can be found in Book 12, Chapter 9, if you want to look this up later. But it highlights a common Jewish interpretation of the law with this simple statement of, the, of this in particular. The purposing to do a thing But not actually doing it is not worthy of punishment. The purposing to do something, like the the deciding, the intention, the purposing, but, but without actually carrying it out, is not worthy of punishment. This is what was being taught. The truth is, this is what we sometimes would rather teach. As long as the action doesn't go across the line, we're okay. But of course, we know that Jesus is obliterating this thought with the reality of something deeper going on when he unpacks this law and when he unpacks other laws in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, his point is, the law is broken and or kept in the heart. The law is either broken or kept in the heart. It goes far deeper than just what you show or what you do or how you act. It's coming 
from somewhere deeper. And the Pharisees were teaching this technical observance to the letter of the law. To obey the law meant perfect conduct, not perfect intent, perfect conduct. Even if the inside was corrupt, if you could keep the outside stainless, you can be righteous. That's what they were teaching. And Jesus is taking this to the woodshed and and doing what you do with things in the woodshed. He's blowing up the paradigm. He's he's rehabbing the way that we see the law of God. It doesn't start with action. It starts with desire. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, How much more disconcerting is it that superficial conception of holiness can think only in terms of action. I know there's a lot of big words in that, so I'm just going to move on, but it was, it's a great quote. The deeper we go into Christ's teaching on the law, the more we realize our absolute need for a power that's greater than ours to deliver us. So what we see here, what we dig under the surface and find is it's, it's drawing us to run toward Christ for hope. There's only hope found in him and then to rely on him because holiness is not an experience to be received. Mm. I don't have time for that. But how often do we come into the house of God and expect holiness to just be an experience to receive? Holiness, by the way, is the goal. And and holiness is a life to be lived. And the only way to live that life is to follow Christ and and be led by the Holy Spirit of God, to be sanctified, to to be set apart, to be made holy, to be consecrated to him. Holiness is not an experience to be received. It's a life to be lived and a Christ to be followed. Last week, if you were here with us, you you, uh, know that you were, you had an awesome sermon last week. But if you weren't here with us, you know that, or you don't know that you missed an awesome sermon is where I was trying to go with that. And Pastor Marcus preached it. And he preached that the only way, remember we preached about anger last week. We talked through that, that part of this sermon. And Marcus made a great statement. He said, the only way you can be angry and not sin is by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And in the same way, in the the exact same way, the only way you can be free from lustful intent is to be empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. This is not an external, let's, let's cut off, let's detract, let's remove all of the things and let's set up barricades around our life and our mind and expect that to be enough. I'm not saying take your filters off of your phone. I'm saying there has to be something deeper at work here. Because remember what else Marcus said last week? Oh, this is good. I don't know if it came from him or not. I feel like I've heard it before. But as long as I say it, I'm giving Marcus Patrick Donaldson credit for this one. The heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. He said that real quick. I wanted him to say it again when I was listening back, so I'm going to say it for him again. The heart of the matter is the heart of the matter. This is where Jesus is is taking us and, 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 and keeping us. Remember, this is another thing I put down from what he said last week. I might just re-preach what Marcus preached last week here for a moment. We don't need to paint roses, Red. The church sometimes gets caught up. It's like the whitewashed tombs. It's, the church gets caught up in painting roses red, painting them red. We don't need to paint roses red. We need to be uprooted. Amen. <laughs> I'm telling you, that the best part about this whole sermon is the loudest amen came from the thing that Marcus preached last week. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Before it's ever carried out, it originates in the heart. The psalmist understood this in Psalm 66, starting in verse 16. Come and hear, he says, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth. 
and high praise was on my tongue. Which is a good thing, but it's not enough. Because look what he says in verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I would have held on to sin and cherished iniquity in my heart, no matter what was on my tongue, no matter what came out of my mouth, the Lord wouldn't have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has known, he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. What can we learn? The hope is found in the forgiveness of God, the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is possible. We can come knowing that even though we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, when we do not cherish that sin and when we toss it aside and we remove it and we turn to him and his love and his kindness and we're led in repentance, he doesn't turn from us. He will listen. He will attend to the voice of our prayer and he will prove that he has not removed his steadfast love from me. That's a beautiful reality. Because if we're honest, Jesus is putting us all under the bus with this one. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. In verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What? I'm like, what? My right eye, my right hand. The right hand is, is also uh, a, a picture of, of strength. That's what... He's implying here as well. He's emphasizing the right eye, the right hand, the, the place on the right. Sorry, lefties. But just for you, we'll just transpose that or trans, you know, over on this side and think about it that way. But he's talking about the place of strength and he's saying, cut it off. Get rid of it. Because it's better that you lose that for a little while and for eternity than for eternity to just be punished in hell. Better for you to surf, suffer a little bit now than to suffer eternally then. And, and so we're, we're reading this and we're like, you want me to cut stuff off? Because if, if I were to, I thought about this legitimately. This is how crazy I am. Welcome to the party. I thought about this. If, if I were to start cutting things off, I would be left with maybe a pinky. Because if I were to cut off everything that leads me or directs me or causes me or actually does the work of sinning, I would be left with a pinky, not even finger, pinky toe. Like, that's the only part of me that hasn't done anything bad at this point, I think. Pinky toe. <laughs> and that's obviously not what Jesus is saying here. It's, Unfortunately, throughout church history, we've seen that people have taken it that far to mammification, to, to maiming parts of their body. To literally interpret what Jesus is saying here. We know, of course, that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, but he's not doing it in a way to make light of the situation. He's doing it in a way to emphasize and make sure that we understand how important and how heavy the reality of this sin is. And the punishment that befalls one who continues in this pattern and continues from the heart to chase after these desires. It's not honoring to God to dishonor the body, which he has fearfully and wonderfully made. By the way, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not honoring to dishonor the body that God teaches us to honor. And, and 
Additionally, it's not possible to earn favor through outward action. The broader point here that Jesus is making is when the body has become a tool for the tempter, we must take this very seriously. If, if the body's been corrupted and perverted and has become a perpetual temptation, it must be cut and cast aside at any and all cost. Purity must be sought at all costs is the point here. But he's taking it deeper and he's saying, lust is in the heart. Take that very seriously. This should not be taken literally, but it should be considered strongly. It should be considered very strongly. Because the heart must be changed and it must be guarded. I find it interesting that in Iraq, when, when we went into, when we invaded Iraq, when the U.S. invaded and Saddam Hussein's quarters were invaded, did you know that if you think about the Middle East, I don't know that there, are, that there is a more modest society in the sense that everything is covered of a woman. Everything is covered from head to toe. And in this society where the strictest, the strictest Clothing regulations are put into effect in the leader of the place's home. They found pornography. Did you know that? What does that say to us? That even when we set up all of these parameters and even when we do all the external things possible and even when we degrade women to the nth degree to the point where we can't see anything but their eyes we still have a heart that's privy and given over to sin and to lust and to desires that are not becoming of us that are not becoming of the Christian and even in a place where they went to such great lengths they still could not stop the lust that was in men's hearts The heart is, is abundantly wicked above all things. The law is broken or kept in the heart. The heart must be purified at all costs. And God is doing this work. But he's also asking us and calling us into the story to be a part of this work of purity. Everyone who looks at another with lustful intent has already committed adultery in the heart. Lust is about wanting things that are off limits. It's, but but I, I don't want to miss the fact that God has given us des a desire for sex that is not a bad thing, that's actually created on purpose to be had to be cultivated to be to flourish in the proper context but when it's out of bounds when it's out of that context it's dishonorable to the point of cut out your eye but Jesus is not looking to eliminate your desires that he placed there. Jesus speaks against lust because he wants to guard what is good. He wants to guard it. This is the way because good desires are so easily twisted by the God of this world, by the prince of the power of the air. And it's so easily twisted in our own heart. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your being made holy, your being set apart and being made holy into his image. This is what this is, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see that parallel that he's drawing there very clearly. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but he has called us in holiness. And therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you, who gives his Holy Spirit to you to dwell inside of your body, the temple of God, so that your sanctification will be possible, that you abstain from sexual immorality and you are able to control your body in holiness And honor. John Piper has a great definition for lust. He says this way Lust is sexual desire minus honor and holiness. It's a good desire that you've been created with minus honor and holiness. I like that because it's real close to what we just read in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is why, this is why pornography is so destructive. Because there is no honor and there is no holiness. There is only lustful intent, lustful desire being satisfied. We are removing the humanness from the person on the other side of the screen and we're taking it to a totally selfish act in order to satisfy desires that were never supposed to be satisfied that way. Pornography which is becoming a huge problem. It has been for a long time, by the way. It strips the honor and purity and holiness from intimacy and makes it a completely selfish transaction. Entirely selfish. Transactional. And then you begin to see people, not for who they are, but for what they can give to you from what they look like. The devaluing of another. God takes it very seriously. And it's ravaging the church. And we think Jesus is overreacting with, even when I look at her with lustful intent, that means I've committed adultery? The reason that we think Jesus is overreacting is because we've lost touch with what is truly holy. Which, by the way, I could say it this way. The reason we think Jesus is overreacting is because we've lost touch with reality. By the way, holiness, the holiness of God and his lordship in the world overall is reality. So we may not think it's reality and we may get real good at desensitizing ourselves to reality, but it makes it no less reality. It makes it no less true that Christ is overreacting. All And he has created all things for him and through him. And he has a plan for it all. And he is holy and just and righteous. And he is in heaven at the right hand of God, having carried out what it took to purchase redemption for people like you and me who play the adulterer. I think we've been so desensitized by the world around us that we have gotten really good at ignoring the consequences in light of holiness. And we've lost the truth of Christ's authority. We've, we've lost the reality of Christ's lordship. D.A. Carson said this, what then does Jesus mean if he's not calling us to hack off parts of our bodies? Okay, you got my attention real quick with that question. Just this, he says, we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it. 
like a baby's bottom with the powder is what I'm picturing. Like, pamper it. Don't pamper it. Don't pamper the sin. Not funny to anybody else but me, but we must not pamper it. We must not flirt with it. Every, Every little bit must not be flirted with. We must not enjoy nibbling a little bit around the edges. We just try a little bit of that. I'll be fine as long as I don't make it there. We must not nibble a little bit around the edges. We are to hate it. We are to crush it. We are to dig it out and and expose it and dispose it. Jesus spoke about the consequences of sin. He spoke about hell. So if we don't like to talk about that, or we don't like it when it's taught from the platform, we are actually, in effect, disagreeing with what Jesus taught, which is very important to realize, that Jesus believed in hell and taught it. And we see that here. Better to pluck your eye out and suffer a little while while you're here than to be thrown into hell and suffer for eternity. Same thing with your hand. This is what he's teaching very clearly. He's bringing us to the consequence of sin. So I have to say this because a gospel which is simply come to Jesus but offers no life without conviction of sin. If if, if the gospel is just come to Jesus and have new life and doesn't talk about being convicted of sin. This is no gospel at all. This is not New Testament evangelism if it does not include being convicted of sin and the consequences thereof. Think about how Jesus would evangelize with questions like, have you counted the cost? Do you realize what you're going to have to give up? Do you know what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me? Yes, he said, come to me. But he also presented consequence for sin. He also presented the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him. We must must explain sin and the consequence of it so that we can fight it and so that we can pursue holiness in Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, evangelism must start with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the demands of the law, the punishment justly explained by the law, and the eternal consequences of evil and wrongdoing. It is only the man who is brought to see his guilt in this way who flies to Christ for deliverance and redemption. I want to propose to us today that, that we will never be able to measure his love without understanding the weight of our sin the weight of our rebellion, because when we see how crushing that weight is, we understand more of how great His love is for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Marriage is established by God. Marriage is a sacred, lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And in marriage, God is telling, he's he's telling a, a much bigger story about the love of Jesus and the love that Jesus has for his people, his bride, the church, the church is the bride of Christ. And we see in our unions, our marriages, a shadow, a picture, a a reflection of Christ's relationship with his church. That's why he takes this so very seriously. Sexual intimacy has been given inside of marriage as the expression of this union between man and wife. It's not merely for pleasure, It's not merely to satisfy our desires. It's a living picture of the two becoming one flesh. 
And it's also been given as a part of the greater creative order that enables life to be born. And this is pleasing when it's practiced in purity. It's pleasing to God. When it's practiced in purity, God is calling us to guard it. Look at Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God's not condemning our sexual desires. I want you to hear this. He's not condemning what we desire sexually. He's directing them in a good way because he's called us to life. He's called us to freedom. He's called us to procreate. He's called us to be satisfied in purity. He's called us to reflect the greater, broader picture of his relationship with the church, which is pure because he is pure. And there is a way to walk that out and live it out in purity, no matter how hard it might be. We have to understand that Jesus died in order to purchase his bride. And he loves his bride. And we await this consummation when one day he will come back for her. But in the meantime, he gives us a picture of what it will be like through our marriage. That's why adultery is taken so seriously, because adultery is a perversion of the picture of Christ's faithfulness to his bride. We are to reflect that faithfulness. Adultery contaminates that picture. The problem with adultery is that we were never meant to be fully satisfied on this side of heaven. I think sometimes we forget that. That we were never meant to be fully satisfied on this side of heaven. We get glimpses, we get tastes, but it's only a foretaste. We don't even know about all of this contamination that we're consuming in an attempt to be satisfied. And we think we're doing all right. But we don't even have the slightest clue of how much satisfaction there's to be offered in eternity in heaven with Christ. And so we get caught up and we get lost in these pursuits, but they're vain pursuits because the problem with adultery is we are seeking what we can never have through a relationship that God never ordained. The truth is, there is no human being who will ever be able to satisfy you. No human being. No, there's no amount of food. There's no amount of substances. There's, there's not enough to satisfy the gaping hole inside of you that is to be filled with purity and holiness himself. So when I don't have time, I don't have time. So I'm going to do it anyway. When you expect your spouse or when you're not, some of you aren't married yet and you're looking to the spouse of your future and you're praying for that and you're hoping for that and you're thinking about what is to come with that. Let me just tell you as a bit of a foretaste of what's to come. You will not find anyone who will satisfy you. Fully and completely. And if you're looking to them for satisfaction, you're looking for it in the wrong place. And I can't stress this enough because there's going to be way more days where you get up in the morning thinking, wow. Less days for me because I'm married to Kaylin, but maybe, you know, for all y'all, there's more days than not where you're not satisfied in your spouse. Let's be honest. There's more days than not. Because we weren't meant to be satisfied by another human being fully and completely. That's meant to be a reflection and a foretaste of what's to come. But we are meant to guard that and keep it holy, longing for a better home. Longing for full satisfaction to come. But guarding ourselves in this life. Good news is in the twinkling of an eye, it's all going to pass away. The flower fades, the grass withers, as 
my brother Matthew talked about this morning. I think. Didn't you say that? Yeah. But the word of the Lord endures forever. We see an, an incredible picture of God's love for us through, through Christ and the love that Jesus has for his bride in the story of Hosea and Gomer. And if I had my way, I would have just told you that story and then been done with the whole sermon. But I had to tell you a lot more than that based on what the Holy Spirit was leading me to in preparation. But I want to tell you a little bit about this story, if you haven't heard it, from from the prophet Hosea in chapter 1, and then we're going to go to chapter 3 briefly here. God sent a prophet named Hosea into the city to marry a prostitute and have children with her. And he did it as a picture of his love toward his people. And this is what he says in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, to your, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so Hosea goes and he takes his wife Gomer out of prostitution and he marries her as the Lord has intended. And then she went back into her profession sometime later. She was unfaithful to Hosea who came and purchased her in that sinful mess who who redeemed her out of it and showed her love she went back again and in Hosea chapter 3 the Lord said to me Hosea said the Lord said to me go again go again go again Hosea I know what she's done. I know how she broke your heart. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Go again. So Hosea said, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a a, a little bit of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Come back with me. I will buy you back again. I will shower my grace and my mercy on you. And I will pay whatever price they ask. And I will be faithful to you. And I'm calling you to be faithful to me. As well. Jesus purchased our redemption in this way. He did what only He could do to accomplish forgiveness once and for all. Forgiveness of sin in His name because of His sacrifice. And in this is love. In this, 1 John 4 says, we, we see the love of God among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. To be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, to bear the wrath of God on our behalf and to be the substitute on our behalf so that we can now walk in him. That's what it says there in verse nine, that that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him, so that we might pursue purity and holiness through him. But it all begins with how he loves us. Always and forever, every morning, when you wake up in the condemnation of the seventh commandment, not the seventh commandment the way that the the Pharisees had 
defined it. But the seventh commandment in the way that Jesus defines it, in that even lustful intent equates to adultery in the heart. Jesus means to expose the inner desires of our heart and that are corrupt and blasphemous. But make no mistake, he also means to offer a path for redemption. And that path is the same path for every person, no matter how much adultery is in your past, no matter how much lust is in your past, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the path to redemption is the same. And it's the blood of Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So come to Him today. Come to Him knowing that your sin is great, but your Savior is greater. And as we celebrate this reality with two, with a brother and a sister today, I want you to remember what has been paid for them. And I want you to remember what has been or can be paid for you as well.